Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a professor at Oklahoma Christian University, where we're celebrating homecoming this week. Go Eagles! Woo! And I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a law professor at the University of Colorado this semester, until he returns to his home in, at Chase. Welcome, Ken. Thanks, Trey. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. This is the exciting time here to be an Eagle uh, here at OC. Uh, we have our team playing at home. It's homecoming here, and I'm, I'm really excited. All our students are excited. It's hard not to get infected with that, uh, that energy. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> You're like, yeah, that's really good for you younger professors yeah, who can yeah. still. <laughs> I, heard, see, I heard all of that in there, listeners. Uh, yeah. And so now, Ken, I guess we were talking uh, before on the air on this. Are you ready to return to your homeland of Kentucky away from the mountainous regions of, of Colorado? Well, I hope no one's listening in Kentucky, but I wish I could stay out here in Colorado a little bit longer. It's really terrific out here. Well, you know, I'm not going to hold it against you. I I, I fled Kentucky now. Um, yeah, yeah. How many? I, I, let's. We won't use the number. Um, but, <laughs> so, but no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to complain with you on that one. But of course, uh, you know, all any of our Kentucky listeners, which I'm sure there's a few, are going. Those two, <laughs> those <laughs> traitors. Um, but we're still Americans, right? I mean, that's probably, right. Yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> so <laughs> I know the big thing this week, uh, listeners, and you guys have been asking about this for a long time and, and we keep putting it off because it's, it's really difficult. Uh, and if you take a look at the, the, the literature, the political science literature, if you take a look at the pragmatic polling data, it's really tough to say, here's what's going to happen with specific candidates in any election. It's a really difficult go. Now, there are some generalized trends that you can uh, predict on. So, for example, we know, for example, Ken, that we have a, a president in power who's Republican, and whether that's Donald Trump or anybody else, that means you're going to have a tough time in the midterms, right? Uh, and we know things like that. Uh, uh, economic conditions will help or hinder those baseline positions. But if your question is, how is uh, uh, Susie Q going to do in race one? That's a lot more difficult until you get real close. And even then, uh, it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a, a magic ball or magic. A, it's a bad prediction. Right, right. <laughs> but that's what we're going to do. We're going to give you the politics guys, Ken and Trey's bad predictions for the midterm. So here you go. Don't blame us. We've told you in advance. Uh, and I, I think one of the things we might want to chat about to start with Ken is the the big picture here and that is in the senate you know let's start with the senate because we got 35 seats up for grab uh, in the senate so uh, listeners my guess is if you're listening to the show you probably know this but can't hurt to go over the basics uh, we the constitution doesn't allow for the senate to go up all of them for an election at one time instead uh, we do one third of them every two years on their six year terms so that you can only actually change a portion of them the idea is they're kind of the the cooling milk to the house's boiling tea uh, and so we've got, we've got uh, 35 seats up and as a matter of fact mo most of those are actually in the democratic camp few in the republican camp uh, and and the uh, democrats are going to need to pick up two seats to win control of the Senate. But that looks a little tough. So Ken, what do you think about the Senate, Democrats, chances, or any specific race you'd like to talk about on the Senate side? 
Well, I, you know, I was relying on some of the, um, you know, the, the main uh, predictive web websites to come up with some numbers. And so the big ones are the Cook Political Report and uh, 538.com, I think, um, that do the most sort of quantitative analysis on the polling. And uh, so I guess the um, last time I looked at um, uh, 538, they're giving the, the Democrats a 81 percent, 81.2 percent chance of taking the House. And the and the Democrats a fourteen point seven percent chance of taking the Senate, so um, overwhelmingly likely um, that the House will switch to uh, Democratic control, while the Senate will stay in Republican control. But um, of course, not that's not a certainty. You know, I mean, the the, the lo those longer odds on on, the, on contrary results are are certainly within the realm of possibility, uh, you know, as well. So it's even possible that it could go the opposite. If you take those numbers. Um, that does mean there's a three percent chance that the Democrats pick up the Senate, but but not the House, which is you know so it's not impossible. Although three percent is pretty uh, short odds on that. So um, I think if the Democrats are going to have any chance in the Senate it, of, of of picking it up, uh, it runs through Texas. I, I don't think there's any possibility for the Democrats to take over the the Senate without Beto O'Rourke beating uh, Ted Cruz. And uh, what about Florida, Cruz Ken? I don't mean to interrupt oh, you, oh. but. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly they'd have to take Florida, but um, I think that'll be easier. Uh, Nelson's the incumbent there. Um, you know, he's he is a little bit ahead of the polls, I think. So I, I'm counting I'm counting the Democrats as as getting Florida um, and saying oh. they still need they'd still need to get Texas. I kind of have that. I have Florida in the too close to call category myself. Um, you know, they've been within the margin of error. Uh, yeah. consistently. And I'll say, having been, you know, a, a Floridian for the last seven, some years, you, you shouldn't underestimate the uh, power of Scott uh, in large part. And this is something that I think people outside of Florida don't really understand. He is, while he may be hated in some ways, his responses to hurricanes were phenomenal. And if you don't think that plays huge in Florida, that's just because you haven't lived there and experienced a hurricane. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you could be right. I'm sure you know Florida better than I do. I was, uh, I was thinking that um, my my thought that Nelson will keep Florida is based on a few factors, but they could be wrong. But but I was thinking, a um, uh, he is the incumbent. He's got some advantages of incumbency. Although I guess Scott also has some advantages of incumbency because he's 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 been the incumbent in in other statewide uh, positions. Right, governor for two governor, uh, for yeah. two for two cycles. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then also, um, I, I feel like the you know you were talking earlier about the demographics and the young voters and the minority voters, and you know I certainly agree with you that um, you still I still would not expect young voters or minority voters to to vote in the same uh, proportions that um, older voters or, or white voters are going to vote in, but um, but I think they will vote in higher proportions than they have before, um, and that's going to definitely um, uh, pr provide an edge to uh, Nelson and. Finally, o Obama has been campaigning hard down there for for Nelson, and I gotta think that's going to help. Uh, he, Obama won that state twice. I think he's still very popular there as well, and he he could especially help energize some of these lower voting uh, communities that I, that we were just talking about. I mean, I think you're absolutely right, but I, I would say that I think the key in Florida is how does the I four and the Miami. Uh, dis, uh, the Miami-Dade districts turn out. Uh, I-4 is that it's the interstate that cuts Florida in half east to west, and it runs through um, Disney Town, also known as Orlando. Um, and that is actually where you're, you see most of your of your shifts. And as a matter of fact, that is where Hillary Clinton really failed 
to uh, turn out on the ground. Uh, and, and where Scott has been uh, particularly effective is in that I-4 corridor, uh, not so much in uh, Miami. That's kind of a foregone conclusion. The question becomes how many of those voters uh, turn out. And you were talking about, uh, we had a bit of a conversation right before the show started, listeners, uh, and we were chatting, and we're going to chat a little bit more on the air about you know what will turnout be uh, for younger voters, for ethnic minorities, et cetera, because those turnout races in midterms are historically low, very, very low, uh, yeah. even lower than in uh, presidential election years. And one of the things that it, it muddies this uh, election prediction is to what extent do you think that those kinds of groups will turn out? And uh, I, I agree with you on that front, uh, and I, I, but I think it'll be that kind of I-4 corridor, at least in, in Florida. But you also want to talk about Texas, Ken. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, let me say one more thing about young voters, because I, I want to agree with something you said, but maybe take a slightly different uh, perspective on it. Young voters in midterm elections, and by young, we mean under 30. Um, I think his historic rate is, you know, about 18 percent. That's really pathetic turnout. So so to even get that up to 20, 23, 25, you know, that's still not great turnout. But but that's going to that would have a big impact. And uh, and, and I think it's I think that is, is possible. Well, and it's interesting because the the polls that we've seen thus far, when you ask people, are they going to vote or not, it keeps the it, it keeps that uh, eighteen to twenty nine age at a little less than a third uh, reporting that they're going to vote. Now, you have to keep in mind that usually the reporting to vote is going to be your outside maximum, uh, because when you ask somebody, are they going to vote, there is a lot of pressure to say, well, of course I'm going to vote, right? Because that's what I ought right. to do. <laughs> uh, so you generally don't see that number come up higher than what we see on the reporting for uh, the likely to vote. And so, you know, right now we're we're un, a little under a third uh, on that re, on the reporting. So, you know, you're right. I mean, coming up, even getting to the you, uh, oh the my quarter, goodness. I was saying, yeah. yeah, I was saying they might get up to a quarter because it's usually less than a fifth. Yeah. So so that so even, you know, completely agreeing with you, I'd say there's no chance that under 30s are going to vote at more than a 25 percent rate. But what I'm also saying is that um, 25% would actually be quite a lot more than in other uh, midterm elections and for, for that demographic. So it could actually have a big impact if they get up that high, even though, you know, by I think by your lights and mine, that's still a pretty low number, 25%. Yeah, and I think it's something else, listeners, you got to think about is that because midterm turnout is low, it doesn't take as many percentage points in depending on how it, it falls into your particular um, race to move that needle a little bit. Uh, whereas it would take a, a little bit more in a presidential race where you're talking about, you know, national turnout. Well, I mean, again, oh my goodness, this is going to sound really high, you know, 60% if you're lucky. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Uh, I, I think that's one of the things that's always interesting. I don't think, because if you're listening to this show, you, you probably are wondering how anyone doesn't vote. That, that's probably my assumption. Yeah. What do you think, Ken? Yeah, no, I, I wondered that too. I mean, I know, um, you know, with younger people, there's a number of reasons they don't, um, you know, ranging from, you know, they haven't developed the habit yet. So, you know, once they've done it once, maybe they'll start doing it more, but they haven't done it once yet. And uh, in some cases, uh, people in that age range are, are very, um, uh, they're moving around a lot. They're living in one place, then another place, then another place. And they, they don't feel, um, you know, they come into a place and they don't feel like they know the local issues of local candidates. And, and so they don't um, register to vote right away or, or, you know, they move over the summer and the window of time to register to vote is closing. So there are a lot of reasons, but still, um, I think that this, the more an election gets nationalized, 
the more likely it is that the numbers go up at least a bit. Um, my, my son made the effort to vote all the way from England, so I think other other people uh, in, in that range should be able to do it. His vote is in. So, um, yeah, I think other people in his cohort should be able to maybe do it a little bit better also. Well, you know, maybe that's something we can talk about a little bit because that is interesting. And you point to something that the literature bears out, and that is one of the reasons that people end up voting in higher percentages is they feel connected to their community. Uh, and one of the things that we know about that 18 to 29 year old segment is that they don't feel connected. I mean, as a matter of fact, if you, if you talk with the average freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, uh, not that I do that every day, all day, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wherever they're from, it is really unlikely for them to say, look, you know what I want to do is I want to get done with college and I want to live right here for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, that wasn't true in Florida. That wasn't true in Kentucky. Uh, that's right. not true here in Oklahoma City. Uh, I, I have never been anywhere where the place where I am is where they want to be. And so they're what happens here seems far less important to them. So why they might have a big conception of, well, I wish uh, government was, you know, pick your direction. The idea that I would have to care about it here is almost non-existent because they think, well, this isn't me. This isn't where I want to be. This is where my parents are. This, you know, this yeah. is not what I'm going to do. And, and there's a lot of, uh, of data to back that up, uh, that, that not having that place makes it much, much harder. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this midterm, there's a lot of nationalization of, of the election. There's a lot of um, idea, I think, certainly from the Democratic side, that it's a referendum on Trump. And so I think that that may help. That may help in terms of um, overcoming the idea that uh, younger voters, I think the more they think about elections locally, the, the more they are not interested in voting um, if they're living temporarily in communities that they're not committed to staying in. Uh, but if they think about it as a nationalized election, they may want to make the effort to vote. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and we were kind of primarily here talking about the Senate and you mentioned the House and I'll kind of bring yeah. that back in and we can talk about young voters on that front, too, if we wish. Yeah. Uh, but again, in the House, unlike in the Senate, all 435 seats go up every two years. So, right. All of our seats across the country go up in the House. Uh, and as it stands right now, if you take a look at the uh, the polling data, there's about 29 of those 435 seats that are what you'd call toss-up, meaning that uh, polling data suggests that it could go either direction, that they're, they're within the margin of error effectively. Uh, yeah. Overall, when you take a look at the uh, the generic ballot, the generic ballot is when we just ask people, well, how do you feel about Republicans versus Democrats? So if you had generic Republican versus generic uh, Democrat, where do you vote? And I was a little surprised about this because the Democrats are only actually leading in that generic ballot in the House by about six to eight points. I kind of I had suspected earlier in the year that this number might have separated a little more, especially given um, kind of some of the vocal opposition to president's policies. And we're going to talk a little bit more about yeah. uh, some of the ones he floated this past week. What do you think about the House more specifically, Ken, uh, and, and the generic ballot? And are there any of those th 29 seats that you think we ought to talk about, like Florida and uh, and Texas <laughs> for the Senate? Um, yeah, I mean, it's harder for me to, uh, I don't I don't know as much about all 435 to talk about on an individual basis, although I could try with a few. But um, well, we don't yeah. want to talk about all of them because, I mean, yeah. 140 of them are solid Republican and 182 yeah. of them are solid Democrats. So, by the way, if you live in one of those, good luck. 
Yeah. Um, you know. <laughs> one, thing, one thing I would point out about the 29 toss-up districts that you mentioned, though, is the fact that there's um, those 29 are toss-up districts primarily is good news for the Democrats because almost all of them are currently held by Republicans, right? So if you figure that um, there's going to be 50-50 odds in a toss-up district that it'll be won either by a Democrat or Republican, but today, um, you know, I think all but three of them are held by um, Republicans. Yes, you're then, absolutely right. Uh, th- then uh, that 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 means just just based on 50-50 that the, uh, the the Democrats are headed to get a big pickup there in those toss-up districts. Yeah, I mean, and that's actually a really good point because it is fascinating. They don't need to pick up that many seats. Uh, I know, I know it seems like it's easier in the Senate when you just look at the numbers, but I think it's a little bit, it is a little bit tougher, but you're right because who is already sitting in those seats is such a big deal. Uh, and you're right. Uh, it is 20, I see six of them. Yeah. 26. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So if you figure that the 29 are going to split 15, 14, just based on 50, 50 odds, and we don't even try to bring crystal balls there about, um, you know, whether it's going to be a way for the Democrats or not, um, you know, that's already a pickup of about of nine or ten seats right there um, for, for the Democrats if, if, if they split it. Now, and, you know, and the other that's interesting thing as we talk about the House here, Ken, is the question of do you think it's a foregone conclusion? Uh, so let's we're going to well, man, let's really put our uh, our hats on. Do you think it's a foregone conclusion that Nancy Pelosi becomes the majority leader again? or the speaker, excuse me, uh, in the house, or do you think that she's going to finally be flanked? No, I think she, I, I, I'll say this. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. Um, I, I, I think the odds are still with her. I, I think if the Democrats, uh, retake the house, I'm going to say there's a 75 or 80% chance that Pelosi becomes the speaker again, not, not a hundred percent chance. Um, but, but I think she's much more likely than anyone else, um, in the Democrats to become the speaker. Now, now this is this is a little more difficult for me uh, because I lack a little bit of bi- uh, I have bias on this front. Yeah. Uh, do you think, as as coming from the left, do you personally do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? If she becomes speaker, yeah. Um, well, I, I I think she see I think she was a good speaker. Um, so the oh okay because so I know there yeah. I know there's a lot of contention about that on the left. Yeah, not not with me. Um, I, I think the to me I would sort of bifurcate your question into two. Um, would she be an effective speaker? Which I, I believe, yes. Um, the other question would be: Would it be um, uh, politically? Would the political disadvantages outweigh the political advantages, such that you know maybe if there's someone else that would be an equally effective speaker, then um, it would be politically more advantageous to get somebody else in there? You know that one. I think maybe so. So so that's sort of how I find that. Um, you know, I, I think there the, there's been um, there's been, yeah, as you said, some controversy within the Democrats about whether she'd be a good speaker. And there, there's a lot of, um, she's been demonized a lot by the right, which has, you know, made her, um, she's somebody that the right likes to run against. And so, so I think those are possible reasons for getting rid of her. But, but I, I also think, um, I don't think anyone else is going to do the job any better than she did it from a Democratic perspective. But do you think she can successfully go up against Trump, or do you think her pre-existing polarization makes her just the rights Trump? Well, I I think she, um, you know, right. They do like to run against her, but the, you've got to ask in comparative perspective here. If if, uh, if the Democrats had a different speaker, um, would the Republicans just um, you know brand that different speaker as the polarizing figure and and run against that different speaker? So. I, I think how much of how much of that is because of um, 
Lucy herself and how much of that is because she's um, you know, been uh, a prominent liberal Democrat for a long time that the Republicans have invested um, uh, a lot of uh, effort into um, turning Republicans against and making her kind of a, a rallying cry for Republicans. They could do that to anyone else. I mean, think about this. Bill Clinton might have been the most conservative Democrat you know, around in his day, but the Republicans uh, still demonized him also. So I, I think that um, that it's not like there's anybody who could take a, a high-level position in the government as a Democrat and not become painted as a polarizing figure. Well, no, I mean, that very well might be the case, but the question becomes, does that history and baggage, because it starts off on day one, harm the ability to get something done in two years uh, before you're, you're coming around to another presidential election? Uh, you know, again, I, I have my own bias here. I think that th that pre-existing baggage is problematic for Democrats to stand up to Trump, and I know that's something else we're gonna we're gonna kind of talk about here in a minute, which is gonna be you know what happens after the midterms. As a matter of fact, we're getting into that right now. Yeah. Well, you know what happens after the midterms, and but before we uh, before, before we kind of move on to that, uh, well, yeah, I mean let's let's talk about one of the other things that Trump threw out there because this is really kind of a midterm strategy, and that is uh, the caravan. Mm -hmm. And let's put that in. If I had, I'm trying to put that in air quotes. It's difficult to yeah, do yeah, that over yeah, the. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we 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 have a a group of individuals. Let's put it that way. Um, and they're coming up. And so Donald Trump has floated this idea to uh, HBO that he he could have a, an executive order that would end birthright citizenship. Uh, and he even said, quote, it was always told to me that you needed a constitutional amendment. Guess what? You don't. Uh, and when he was told that was in dispute, he says, quote, you can definitely do it with an act of Congress. But now they're saying I can do it with just an executive order, end quote. And it's interesting because there is some, some big debate on this. This all kind of centers around the 14th Amendment. Um, so, listeners, for those of you who don't have your pocket constitution handy, shame on you. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, the Fourteenth Amendment says all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. And the Fourteenth Amendment was basically a companion amendment to the Thirteenth Amendment, which was part of the ending uh, the post Civil War ending of slavery and the resultant uh, political and legal issues that stemmed out of that. And both left and right have stepped out. Um, the National Review had a big piece this week, uh, kind of from the right perspective, uh, arguing that, look, we don't want to give credence, credence to Trump, but this is a congressional issue. It's not a constitutionally mandated issue. You're, you're misinterpreting the Constitution. Now, Ken, I know this is a little more of your area. I mean, you're a, a, a legal pers a, a professor. What's your perspective on this? And what do you think, uh, maybe not even just about what, what Trump is saying here about the constitutional, uh, the uh, executive order, but the idea could this be done, undone with an act of Congress, given that Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution says uh, that Congress gets to, quote, establish a uniform rule of national, uh, excuse me, naturalization? Well, so I, I have to answer that question on two levels as well. Um, you know, I, I, one, one way to answer it would be um, if you assume that we have a normal Supreme Court that would apply normal uh, legal methodology to, to resolve this question, 
then it's a hundred percent chance that this cannot be done by statute or by executive order. Um, uh, there, there's very few legal questions as easy as this one. Um, uh, but on, on the other hand, um, if you assume that we have uh, a, a kind of really radicalized Supreme Court now um, after the Kavanaugh appointment, that's willing to um, not only completely overturn, you know, very very well established answers to very very well established questions, but to essentially consider that every single constitutional question is now up for grabs, and there's no such thing as a settled uh, 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 a question of constitutional law, then you know possibly Trump's right. Um, but but um, but but I, I I don't you know so so um, so I I don't know which situation we're in. I don't know which world we're living in. I don't know if we're living in a world where um, questions that are have been always considered to be super easy and already decided um, are now up for grabs, um, or whether uh, or whether there's going to be some adherence um, to the text of the Constitution and to the precedents that have been decided under it. Uh, but the, uh, the the 14th Amendment, um, the Uniform Law of Naturalization stuff. Um, remember that 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 it took it took uh, about um, about 60 or 70 years after those words were written before we had such a concept as a, an illegal alien. So at the time that the framers wrote the Uniform Law of Naturalization, there was really no concept that people could be um, excluded from the United States or that people could be uh, illegal or undocumented aliens. Aliens could just come here. Um, the question of naturalization was whether they could become citizens, but there wasn't, there wasn't a concept of um, uh, excludable aliens. So that we don't really get until the Chinese Exclusion Acts which are actually post-14th Amendment. So we get the 14th Amendment after the Civil War. The 14th Amendment has the language that, that you read, which has a strong presumption that, I mean, not just a presumption, a statement that persons born or naturalized in the United States normally are going to be citizens of the United States. Um, and there is just this one phrase that you mentioned that says, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. And uh, so that might sound as if there's some question about, well, what does that mean to be born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Um, at the time that the, the framers of the 14th Amendment wrote that at the end of the Civil War, uh, most of the evidence is that they were still thinking about excluding Native American Indians on reservations and saying that they, they were in, the reservations are in the United States, but not subject to the jurisdiction thereof. And so they didn't automatically get citizenship. And then, and then the more specific question about alien, alien parentage it's decided pretty soon after um, in a case called United States versus Wang Kim Ark, which comes from uh, 1898. So that's soon after the Chinese Exclusion Acts get enacted, which are the first um, uh, um, acts that create this idea that we now have of undocumented aliens or illegal aliens. Chinese Exclusion Acts said that not only couldn't Chinese uh, people become citizens, but in fact, they couldn't even come here. They couldn't come to the country anymore. And so the, the, the Wang Kim Ark uh, case um, is about this guy who um, his parents were Chinese uh, Chinese citizens who came to California. Um, Wang, Wang Kim Ark was was born here. Um, his parents left when the Chinese Exclusion Acts got enacted, um, and he went to visit them and then came back. And when he came back, um, the customs officers did uh, refuse him entry into the United States on the grounds that he was Chinese um, and that and that his parents were not American. Um, and, and he argued uh, um, that he'd been born here, um, and so therefore under the 14th Amendment um, was automatically a citizen. And the court did consider whether um, someone who was born here to alien parents who were excludable um, uh, was, was um, fell within that category of subject to the jurisdiction thereof. And the court said absolutely not. Any, anyone who's born here uh, um, is um, a citizen, 
and the they, the only expansion they made on the category of subject to the jurisdiction thereof, besides applying it to Native Indians on reservations, was to also apply it to um, children of um, diplomats, foreign diplomats. So the idea was that because diplomats have foreign um, immunity, they have a diplomatic immunity, that they're not subject to the jurisdiction thereof in the United States, but that um, other, other ordinary uh, aliens, um, even if they are, are um, not even allowed to stay here, um, if, if, their parent, if their children are born here, their children are citizens. So that's been a completely well-settled question since the Wong Kim Park case in 1898. The only way that, um, uh, that, that, the, uh, that it could be answered uh, in a contrary way is if the Supreme Court is willing to um, overrule a very well-established uh, 120-year-old precedent that's been um, continuously applied the whole time. Well, and you, that's something that's interesting. That question is interesting to me as a political scientist. Uh, and, you know, one of the things the Supreme Court, as a matter of fact, said is, you know, we're under a constitution, but the constitution is what the judges say it is. And so that effectively means that the idea of common law and precedent, as you put it, it doesn't matter necessarily how long that there's a precedent in, in place. The, con- the, uh, the Supreme Court can overturn that precedent. Precedent, and then there's really no check on that power of judicial review, and so you know this has been this this makes for an interesting political science issue in my opinion because you have this question of well is our future courts actually bound by earlier courts and of course the court says yes with with an if and no with a but <laughs> and and so you come to these kinds of pivotal moments. And so what do you think about – and this is something that I know is is interesting for both listeners and, and it's interesting on kind of where the legal and the political science fields overlap, that the idea that, that the court having this kind of power is in, in itself a problem because it leads to these kinds of unknowable issues? Well, I, see, I, I don't think it necessarily has to be that way. I mean I think – I do, I do suspect and fear – that the current Supreme Court now, um, with Kavanaugh having replaced Kennedy, um, essentially feels uh, really unbound by these precedents, um, by any precedents, which means when you ask a constitutional question, like you just asked me the question, you know, what does the natural born citizenship clause mean? What does the 14th Amendment section one mean? You know, the idea that the idea that that question could be up for grabs now actually means that literally every constitutional question could be up for grabs now and that there's no such thing as constitutional law anymore. Because um, there's no um, agreed upon methodology for how you would go about answering a constitutional question. But has there ever been an agreed upon methodology between justices? I mean, we have uh, different kinds of textualism. I mean, you you can you can just look at any constitutional law book and and see that there has been a variety. Even undergraduates have a number of different ways that judges have determined to interpret the law from uh, from textualism one and two, which is always fascinating to me, uh, to these other variants of understanding the Constitution. So, I mean, I, again, I, I agree with you on what the, the meaning of the 14th Amendment, but I, I think one of the bigger interesting issues here is that uh, this idea of what does the Constitution actually mean, it, it, it seems to, at least from my point of view, the left cares about it when they care about it, and the rest of the time they don't really care about it. <laughs> well, I would attribute that to the right, not to the left. But I guess that's one of those things where it's just going to be. Well, I mean, but again, I, this this I mean, uh, you know, the yeah. the left judges will uh, interpret the the law in fascinating ways sometimes, um, and then then they're like, but then suddenly they're interested in the uh, in the meaning of the in the framers. Uh, 
take on it here. And again, I'm, I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm happy about that. But I, I'm a, I, my fear is that that's not what's going to actually last. What's actually going to last is this idea that uh, what you're suggesting is always true, uh, that the Republicans, uh, when, when, or actually more specifically, when you have a specific judicial philosophy controlling the court, that judicial yeah. philosophy reigns until the court shifts and you have a new judicial philosophy uh, take over. Well, here, here's how I would look at that. Um, and it's why I really only blame the right and not the left. Uh, I, I think that it's true that there's sincere differences about um, interpretive methodologies that, that, that left and right have, you know, maybe le the right has uh, proposed textualism as a, as a more legitimate interpretive methodology um, or, or originalism. Or originalism, yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Yeah, where, whereas the, the left may have proposed um, what might be called doctrinalism, um, you know, trying to, trying to extract principles from precedents and then apply those principles. So those are some sincere differences. But what I think you only see on the right, and I never see this on the left, um, is a really easy willingness to jettison their own stating me stated methodologies to get a result that the Republican Party wants. And I think this case is a really typical example of it because the text of the 14th Amendment and the original meaning, original understanding of that is, is very clear in this case, right? I mean, how much clearer could text be than to say all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States? Um, but yet it's the right that um, purports to um, use textualism as their primary method um, that, that is just completely willing, I think, now to jettison that in terms of this is a case where textualism should clearly lead you to one result. But but that textualism suddenly isn't important to the right anymore when even though that's their own methodology, when they when the Republicans want to reach a different result. Well, now, now in the defense, that's interesting that you're pointing out for this particular one, because one, I mean, uh, the the justices on the court have not yet obviously ruled because we don't have anything from Trump right. uh, and, and Trump. I mean, he's about as a textualist or an originalist or anything else as he is. Pick your other adjective. I mean, he's not even a conservative for that matter. Right, right, right. I agree uh, with you there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so that's kind of weird. Now, and but we've had, you know, even Paul Ryan has come on and said, "Well, no, you can't do that." So it doesn't right. seem exactly like there's been a uniform uh, right position. Although, I mean, again, National Review is taking this kind of, I think, a little bit of an interesting position. But I'm not going to make the National Review the uh, right. the, the be all end all for uh, the conservative party any more than I'll, I'll do that for. Um, you know, slate on the left. Uh, so anyway, because we kind of expand on that, because I mean, you, you kind of seem to already be pre-assuming that the so-called conservative justices are going to rule with Trump on this one. Yeah, well, actually, I don't really think they all will. I think I, I think there will be some who do. I, it's hard for me to see Roberts ruling with Trump on this one. And therefore, I actually think that the, the Trump, you know, the, the Trump would lose this case. But um, but I think uh, um, I think there's a you know I'm sure that Thomas will and Thomas purports to be one of the textualists. Um, I'm I'm fairly sure that Alito will and Alito purports to be one of the textualists. And I I think there's a chance of them picking up uh, uh, Gorsuch as well. So um, it's I think Roberts and ironically enough I think Kavanaugh um, I think are, are the, the least likely to um, have the uh, uh, more more radicalized uh, approach to a, a problem like this. But but. Uh, but I just, yeah, I just generally think that um, if this is not an easy question of constitutional law, then there's no longer any such thing as an easy question of constitutional law. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I have come to the conclusion, having studied this for a while, that there, there are very few easy ones. Um, but, you know, that could be my my uh, my bias coming in. We always seem to 
Anyway, that's a long story. Yeah, we won't yeah. go that. We don't have enough time to go. I was looking at our time, listeners, and I realized yeah, yeah. that we've got to we've got to move forward. We got one last thing we want to talk about, uh, and that is what happens after the midterm. We've already talked about that a little bit with Pelosi. Uh, we talked a little bit about kind of this reaction of the Supreme Court, uh, but one of the other kinds of I'd say minor issues, but uh, still interesting coming up this week has been the Pelosi Trump crosstalk on the subpoena power of Congress. And uh, Pelosi kind of throws out, in in a very light way, I would say, uh, the idea, quote, the subpoena power is interesting to use it or not to use it. It's a great arrow to have in your quiver. Uh, This kind of idea that she she and others could use it to try to get at some things happening in the White House. Uh, And then Trump, uh, in his usually hyperbolic, uh, one would hope, way, uh, but generally isn't, (laughs) as we'll just say bombastic way, perhaps, uh, calls this uh, threat illegal uh, and that it's going to take years before it'll make it to the Supreme Court. Uh, basically, that's a violation of executive power. So assuming that I think what we I think what we've said today is that we we're kind of predicting that, you know, you, you take the 50 50 toss up for our House seats and you have Democrats getting a slim majority. And then you're either going to have uh, Pelosi as the most likely, or maybe somebody else taking over as the as the as the uh, majority leader in the, the speaker again. Excuse me, the speaker in this uh, in the uh, House. And what do you think about the upcoming outcome of the midterm elections? Do you think a Speaker Pelosi and a narrow majority Democratic House will be able to? investigate change anything on the president or do you think this becomes a sideshow and i don't mean that in a negative way but kind of yeah. a, a a build up to a 2020 well i do think there's going to be a lot of investigations um and in part i think that's because i think it's going to be difficult for um the the parties to work together on um on legislation right so if you think about if you've got a democratic house a republican senate and and trump in the white house um I don't see much reason for the Democratic House to spend a lot of time working on trying to um, advance legislation. I think um, they're mainly really going to be there to, to check and check and balance against um, Republican legislative initiatives and stop stop those from going through by and large. And so that actually does leave a lot of time to do investigations. Um, uh, and and so um, I think they will. Uh, I, I don't think there will be, be an impeachment. I know people are talking about that. Um, there seems to be to be no percentage in that from a democratic perspective since it's um well there's no well there's no political win there's no political win for that one i mean if you're democrats all you have to do is look back to the impeachment of clinton right. and realize that uh, whether that would I mean again let's just completely put aside the the issue of whether or not you know let's just assume that that's what you ought to have, they thought they ought to have done there was no political points to be gained from that in the long run yeah i i think that's obvious i think you're right and uh you know, there's and there's no other possible outcome here. If there was an impeachment trial of Trump, um, then you know, no no Republican senators are going to vote uh, uh, to remove him, and so it's um, he's going to be acquitted uh, and uh, you know, arg- arguably exonerated by the acquittal. There's no benefit in that. So I, I I think Pelosi herself has clearly said that many times. I know a lot of Democrats are um, in the base are calling for impeachment, but um, I think Pelosi's very clear-eyed about that, and there's not going to be an impeachment, but but that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be investigations investigating the question of whether there should be an impeachment, uh, even even if there's not going to be an impeachment in the end, because the investigations, um, 
I think have political benefit to the Democrats mainly because they are going to turn up a lot of stuff. And also, um, you know, I think they're justified. I think the public really deserves to know more about, um, you know, all, all the things that um, Trump has been up to, you know, some of which, um, you know, some of which may be in the news a lot and others of which, you know, may not be in the news a lot. But um, I, I think that the, I think it would be a beneficial role to have a lot of oversight. investigation. So I, I think we'll see that. Uh, and one last thing I'd like to kind of add there, Ken, is, is it, it, be, it seems to me to be clear that Mueller has things that is that are coming, but obviously none of that is going to get leaked until we get after the election. And so I think we're going to have some really interesting shows in the end of November, beginning of December, because I think there's some interesting things happening there, uh, some hints and some suggestions that the Mueller team. So I would say another thing, even maybe before we get to a Democratic controlled house having uh, questioning subpoena power is going to be this issue of what's Mueller been waiting on. And I, and I think there's something there. And, and I think it comes relatively quickly after the election. But I guess we'll have to wait and you'll have to join yeah. us then. <laughs> if, I could, if I could say two words yeah. about that, I think, uh, A, I, I think Roger Stone will be indicted very soon after the election. Um, but B, um, I, I sent you an article on this. I didn't know if you had a chance to look at it, but there's there's some speculation that Mueller has already subpoenaed uh, Trump. And, yes, uh, that I, yeah. I had I had seen that, and I had seen that article before you'd sent it. Oh yeah, yeah. So I I don't know what to make of that. I mean, just the evidence for it is that there there it seems that um, from the secret grand jury proceeding, there's been um, a, a, a secret uh, appeal to the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for the D.C. Circuit, um, and that the appeal has gone up and down in very rapid succession a few times. Um, now, the, the names of the parties, um, because grand jury proceedings are always secret, yes. the names of the parties are redacted. We don't know who it's about, but we do know that um, it's been being treated on an extremely expedited basis, and also that one of the judges on the D.C. Circuit, um, who had worked in the Trump White House before being a Trump appointee, has recused Jesus himself from, yeah. Yeah, from this particular proceeding, which um, seems to place uh, that it would involve someone that's, um, you know, in the in the Trump White House or close to Trump or it could be Trump himself. So I think those are the main pieces of evidence um, uh, that, that, that there's definitely something going on that involves this, this Mueller's office um, and, the, and a grand jury proceeding and a lot of wrangling that's going up and down to the appeals court. And it's being treated much more expeditiously than most of these kind of matters that go up and down to the appeals court. And I think whatever that is, it's going to be we're going to be hearing more about it once the election is over, because if it comes out sooner, I mean, Mueller is he's intelligent on this front. So, but yeah. And and I guess I, everybody's saying Sessions is going to be fired by the end of this week. And that has some implication, I think, for um, for the security of Mueller's position as well. And that's an interesting question, but uh, I think we're going to have to leave it there. And uh, next week, maybe we'll be talking more about sessions. Maybe we'll talking we'll be talking a little bit more about uh, the midterms. But in the meantime, I'd like to say, well, that is it for us. And I hope that you've liked what you've heard. But if you are a supporter, the show is not necessarily done for you because right after this, Ken and I are going to be doing a bonus show for our supporters and supporters this week. We're going to be talking about screens, their effects on students and kids and their political outcomes, which I think is something that has really flown kind of in a weird radar position. But if you want to know more about that, what I need you to do 
is to head to politicsguys.com slash support or to head to politicsguys.com and click support. By supporting the show, you will get access to the bonus show. And trust me, Ken and I are even better on the bonus show. We put our hair down. It's crazy. Uh, <laughs> but be that as it may, even if you are not a supporter, you can help the show in so many ways. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Share the episodes with your friends and family. I mean, it's midterms. Give them a hard time. You know that you've Republican or Democrat in your family who's going to love you for sending this to them. So get ready for Thanksgiving by sending them the politics, guys. Rate us on iTunes. We love hearing from you. So please shoot us emails at mail at politicsguys.com or as our always fascinating Facebook conversations on facebook.com slash politics guys page. That's right. Politics guys page or for the few of you who actually do this, Twitter at Politics Guys. The executive producers are Michael Baranowski, Jared Carson, and Trey Orndorf and Bruce Johnson. This episode was produced by Trey Orndorf. There'll be a new show this Wednesday. We hope to see you then.